are beginning a new series today that's um, going to run till mid-September um, when we're basically, we're still sort of dialing down over August and then um, as we hit the fall, everything will sort of ramp up again and we will do alpha, we will do city groups, which is our version of like home groups, meeting in people's homes once a week. We're going to do more serve the city events, we're going to do socials, uh, we're going to do prayer training, as Raoul mentioned, we're going to sort of ramp up again, but at the moment it's all a little bit dialed down. And then we were going to do that full on until we get to um, Christmas. And then we'll have a little break. Just doing that. Anyway, the focus of this series is on what bread as a church is called to do and is positioned to do. Now, I hesitate to call this a series on vision because I don't believe in vision statements for churches. I know people love a vision statement. I personally am of the conviction that the vision for any church, this church included, is to be a really, really, really good church. That's what churches are supposed to do. We don't really get to pick and choose, oh, this is our, spe this is our speciality. When Jesus commissions Peter to be the rock on which he will build his church. He doesn't sort of whisper in his ear afterwards, oh, and by the way, um, I want you to really focus on teaching because, you know, you're a great teacher. Be a teaching church. Be a really good teaching church because we don't get to pick and choose. Instead, have a listen to this. This is the description of the early church in Acts from chapter 2. Famous passage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe by the many wonders and signs performed. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So it's all in there. Community, teaching, sacraments, prayer, supernatural, serving those in need, fellowship, worship, praise, conversion, and engagement with people and culture outside of the church body. They did not just go for what we want our church to be is a have a really kind of kick-ass worship experience, even though that's very important. And most importantly, notice that everyone's involved, not just the select few anointed ones. Now, before this gets um, unrealistically idealistic, I know that all churches are limited in many ways. And that therefore, a sort of church utopia will never exist this side of heaven. Firstly, churches are limited by resources and circumstances. As I'm sure you would uh, understand, a poorer inner city church is going to have different opportunities and resources to a more um, established, uh, richer suburban church. Not necessarily worse or better, just different. But also, secondly and significantly, churches are limited by people. People like you and me, and particularly their leaders. We Hannah and I, we limit this church. Isn't that so reassuring? We limit the church because we, like you, are broken people who don't always get it right, 
who bring their own agendas into things and stop the church from actually functioning in the utopian way it would um, better be if they did. So this utopian picture of church in Acts, as you may understand, it lasts for about five seconds before people get in the way. Read through any of Paul's letters, and what he is basically doing is trying to get people to stop being such idiots. Don't do that, don't do that, because you're messing the whole thing up. So, let us be realistic, but let us not be defeatist, because the church remains the hope of the world. And where we are weak, he is strong, and the power of his spirit is what we all rely on, and it is him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. The early church, empowered by the spirit, despite all its problems, nevertheless turned the world upside down for God's kingdom, and we, if we would just grasp something of the power of God to use us and change us, can do the same, something we will come back to. So, this is a series not really about the vision for bread. It's rather about the core aspects of what Christian life is about. About what Jesus examples as the true Christian life. About what Jesus teaches about as the true Christian life. And about what Jesus commissions us to be involved in as the true Christian life. And it's not going to be exhaustive, but hopefully it will cover the major bases. So, we are going to do one week on the worship life of the church, one on the prayer life, one on the evangelism life, one on the social justice life, and one on the community life. It will be theoretical, but also, most importantly, it will be practical. Because we are called to grow up and mature as individuals and as a body to do all that we have been tasked to do in this city. Good. So that's a little introduction. But today, I want to take a little backward step. Before we, as the church, look to fulfill these roles individually and corporately, should we not ask a primary question or two? Question number one, why would God want to use any of us at all anyway? Question number two, do we actually want to be used for God's kingdom? Let's answer the second question first. Do you want to be used to build the kingdom of God? Well, as Raoul said, everyone gets to play, but no one has to. Admission into the family of God comes with no expectations, no requirements, and no obligations. This is very important for you to hear if you've ever heard anything contrary to that. Admission into the kingdom of God comes with no obligations, no requirements, and no expectations. This is the wonder of what Jesus has done. He has destroyed all the power of sin that separates us from him so that we can look full into the face of God our Father and we can hear his unmovable, never-ending, unchanging words of affection to you. Yes, my child, I love you. I am with you. Son, daughter, you are mine. So my children, I have three of them. We're still learning how to do that as well. Uh, 
they, irrespective of what they do, are always my children. They cannot stop being my children. And so it is with us and God. You're his. You can't stop being his. He's got you. Also, Hannah and I, she's a little bit better at this than me, we try to love our children unconditionally. It's a high goal. We don't achieve it. But we try to love them whatever it takes. Now, God our Father doesn't try to love us unconditionally. He cannot help it. He cannot know anything other than unconditional love for you because that is who he is. It, the Bible doesn't say God is loving, that he tries to love and that he, he's doing his best to love us. It says that God is love. He's the author and perfecter of love. So his love is not in question for you. You cannot get out of it. So then we will always be his children and you can take yourself off the hook. You can just be the precious child of the loving God for the rest of your life and you will be very happy. Nothing else is required of you. That said, all of us are made in the image of God and being made in the image of God, we naturally share his purpose for life. We share in having this thing hardwired into us that needs to do stuff. You may know this, but um, retirement often comes with a healthy dose of depression. People who retire stop doing what they do. They actually find themselves uh, collapsing in on themselves because they don't have this thing to do. And anyone who has been out of work for any time will know that it's hard not to also be dragged down into depression because, amongst other things, we are hardwired to do stuff. And when we're not doing stuff, it's hard to feel fully ourselves. And you see this throughout the story of the um, Bible. So in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve to be in relationship with him, to share in his uh, love and the Trinity's kind of um, never-ending uh, relational sort of um, love-in, love-fest. Um, but he also gives them a purpose straight away. Look after the garden, tend to it, but also extend it. Do you know what is outside the Garden of Eden? And by the way, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. But do you know what is outside the Garden of Eden? It is chaos. You can believe in the Garden of Eden. It really doesn't matter. Don't fixate on that. Don't fixate on that. Anyway, outside the Garden of Eden, it is unruly, horrid chaos, a nightmare that needs to be tamed and brought order to. And that is exactly what God says to Adam and Eve, and go out and extend the boundaries. And Jesus, of course, was someone who was with his father. He had a perfect relationship with his father. He, um, he prayed and enjoyed his affection and his love, but he also did stuff. He taught and he, um, uh, he cast out demons and he healed people and he set people free and he proclaimed the good news. And the disciples were exactly the same. They sat under Jesus' teaching. They f um, experienced his love and his affection for him, that they were part of the year of the Lord's favor, that having not known where the future would end, they now know that it is about him and he is proclaiming good news to them. And then, having done that, they also do stuff. They heal, they teach, they proclaim the good news. They cast out demons. 
and you are no different. We are intended to be human beings and human doings in equal measure. So you must receive the love of your father. You must receive the identity that he has given you that is rightly yours. But you also must be empowered to do the things that he's created you to do. Mature Christians have a strong sense of who they are in Christ and of what he has called them to do in his world and through his church. As we've said time and time again, we believe that church is like a hospital where you can come and you can get fixed up because out there, things come against us, we get involved in stuff, and we need to be able to bleed and need to be able to be um, uh, reconstituted to have the things that we've got ourselves involved in or people have involved ourselves in taken out so that we can actually be restored to a good relationship with our Father. So it's a hospital, but it's also a gas station where we get filled up with the knowledge and the power of God so that we might actually be of use to this world that we live in. So I would not be doing my job properly if I did not tell you that everyone gets to play, no one has to play, but you will be far happier, far more fulfilled, far more yourself if you are fulfilling your role as a child of the living God in this world and in this church. And it is both and in here and out there. So, let's consider the other question. Why would God want to use any of us at all for his kingdom? If you are sitting there thinking... God could not possibly, possibly, possibly want to use me for anything because have you seen what I was doing yesterday, last night, this whole month, for most of my life? Or I don't even know whether I believe in God. I don't really know whether uh, the Christianity that I grew up is really true. I doubt all the time. Or I am lazy, or I am just too outside of the type of person that I've seen God use. Why would he want to use me? If you are thinking that, if you've ever thought that, congratulations, well done. You have passed test number one, which lots of people never pass, of being used by God. It means you are exactly the sort of person that God wants to use. In fact, you are the only sort of person that God wants to use. The story of the Bible is this. God choosing the weak, lowly, doubtful ones, the ones who've messed up, the ones who don't think they're good enough, and using them to do extraordinary things. He uses Moses, stuttering, stammering Moses. He can't speak properly, and he's also murdered someone. Ever done that? If you have, we need to have a chat. Uh, Stuttering, stammering Moses to, guess what, be the mouthpiece of God to the most powerful ruling nation in the world. There's a bit of irony there. He uses Peter... Hot-headed Peter, who's been overlooked by all the other rabbis, so he's had to take his job as a fisherman. In fact, all the disciples have been looked, overlooked by the other rabbis, so they've gone to go and do other jobs. But Jesus chooses him, the one who is hot-headed, who promises everything, delivers nothing, and irony of irony, you're the one I'm going to build my church on. He uses Paul. Paul is, let's be honest, a bit of an, you know, he's... 
Does anyone want to go for a drink with Paul? Not really. He's not going to be the first person I find to go for a drink with when I get to heaven. Paul is a legalist. He is... Um, something has crawled up there and died a little bit for him, and he's taken it to such an extreme that he is killing Christians because this is what people who are fixated on the right thing will always do. And yet, God chooses him to, guess what? Proclaim the message of grace. To proclaim with such ferocity the message of unmerited, undeserved free-flowing, without limit, grace to the whole world because, irony of irony, God has a sense of humor and he likes the weak ones. He likes the ones who don't think they can do anything. Before I was a Christian, I used to tease Christians. I used to find the Christians and mock them. They used to do this thing at university where they would, it was called grill a Christian. If you're ever invited to grill a Christian, never go to that. Uh, but grill a Christian was where the Christians would sit in the bar and you could ask them any questions. And I would go to these and mock them. I wouldn't ask questions, I'd just mock them. I'd say things like, why does the devil have all the best tunes? And they wouldn't answer. They wouldn't know the answer to that. I would do that because I thought they were useless and pathetic. And then I became a Christian. That was some pride swallowing that I had to do. He doesn't, by the way. So do you doubt or question whether you could ever, ever, ever possibly be used by God? Great, you're in. And being in, having acknowledged our weaknesses, having actually just been honest with who we are, now let us be filled with the glory of the living God, with the power of the living God, to do things not in our own strength, but in his. He chooses that which is not to shame that which is. Why? Because of this. One, he wants everyone who is observing you being used to know exactly where it is that the power is coming from. And two, he wants everyone observing you being used to know what type of person it is who has given you that power, the one who wants to show his compassion and his grace to use all the things that aren't very good, that are a bit messed up, that are a bit weak, that do fail, that do carry on doing the things that we wish we wouldn't do. And he wants people to see that he, that is the sort of God he is, one of total compassion and grace and mercy to you and to the whole of the world. Good. So, let me read to you um, Paul's little depiction of what the church is like from 1 Corinthians 12. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, 
To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another, the message of knowledge, to another, faith, to another, gifts of healing, to another, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in other different kinds of tongues, still another, to the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by the one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one but many. Paul then goes on this tortuous analogy about how the church is like a body and it has different limbs and the foot should not say that it wants to be a mouth when it's actually a foot, it should just do the foot thing. And anyway, the point is unity and diversity. And I'm kind of going to skip over the um, list of spiritual gifts, that's for another talk. But here are a few things that we need to know about what it is to be part of church. Number one, the gifts of the Spirit are given to us so that we can actually do stuff. It is not an exhaustive list, there are other lists. And the most important thing to know about the, spirit, uh, the gifts of the Spirit is that we need to know about them. Verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. We need to know about them. Don't think that they are an optional extra. Don't believe the erroneous teaching that the gifts died out with the apostles. Let me just quickly speak to that. There is no biblical or historical basis for that position whatsoever. Good. And don't buy into, probably more pervasive, an idea of Christianity that the supernatural isn't really part of it. This is purely influenced by our materialistic Western thinking, and actually we find the supernatural a little bit like out of there. However, if you think about it, and as we've often said here, the supernatural is us. It is our faith. The thing that we believe is a virgin giving birth to the Son of God who's also a man. He then goes around healing people of illnesses. They rise from the dead, and then he goes and dies on a cross and rises again. So if we don't really do the supernatural, we don't really do Christianity in its authentic form. Try Marxism or math or something else to base your life on, but Christianity is going to be supernatural. It is what we believe. So let us not be ignorant about spiritual gifts as well. Now, deconstructionism is very important. For many people, they will be going through a process or need to go through a process or have gone through a process where they deconstruct the faith that they were brought up with. And I like those podcasts to a certain extent, you know, the deconstructionist ones. They're helpful because they get rid of and they strip away erroneous teaching. They get rid of and they strip away legalism. They get rid of and they strip away the ways in which politics has infiltrated the faith. They get rid of all of that and it needs to be got rid of because it's not doing you any good and it's not the true gospel of Jesus. So deconstruction is good, and bread will always be somewhere where you can deconstruct. It is very important. We've got to always ask questions, and we've got to have no fear of asking questions. You should ask them all the time. You know, blind faith is not faith. 
Pretending things are the way that they aren't is not faith. Faith is faith in Jesus Christ. However, having deconstructed things, and anyone who has deconstructed things will know this, what you're left with is everything in pieces, which is not very helpful. So there needs to be some reconstruction, and this is where the Holy Spirit comes in, because he is the spirit of truth. And he will convict you of the actual truth of Jesus. And he is the spirit who pours out and administers to us the love of our Father. He is the one that will help you understand and believe yourself to be the child of God and to experience his love and forgiveness. And he is the one who empowers us to do the stuff. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, someone came to the church. And um, I didn't know anything about them. They came to the front to, pray f- to be prayed for. And as I was praying for them, I didn't know anything about them, but I felt like God say, um, just tell this person that they are a worship leader. I thought, well, okay. Uh, so I s- said that to her, at which point she just burst into tears. Um, and then started sort of shaking a little bit. Uh, and um, it seemed to be that the Holy Spirit was talking to her. So we had a little chat afterwards. And she said, well, what you don't know is that for 15 years I've been a worship leader. I was brought up in it. I love leading worship. But most recently I have just got sick and tired of the church thing. This corporate thing where I am wheeled out, I lead worship. It's all about, you know, have I done it perfectly? Are people really responding? You know, all that sort of stuff. And I'm just done with church. I don't know what I believe. I don't know whether I could even go to church. But I love worship. I love worship and I've loved being here in worship. But I'm basically done. And I don't want to be a worship leader anymore. Now... I didn't know that. That, I think, is a gift of the Spirit. It's a word of knowledge. But what it is, is quite helpful for her to know that God actually understands her, that he saw her coming, and she had a very powerful time of actually being reminded that who she is is who she is. Now, obviously, she needs to go through the process of working out if she actually believes any of it. However, the gift of worship leading is never going to leave her because that is what she is. And at some point, um, she'll lead worship again, hopefully. So, the supernatural is us. Secondly, these are Jesus' gifts. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So there is a spiritual dimension to life, and Jesus is Lord of all of it. However, not all that is spiritual comes from or is compatible with him. So, as only that which comes from him points towards him, everything else in the spiritual realm is necessarily against him. It is in opposition to him being Lord. So all of us need to give up our gifts in the same way that we need to give up our whole lives when we become Christians and give them over to his lordship. Now, this isn't about intention, wanting good things to come from what we um, have. I'm sure there are well-intentioned Reiki healers and well-intentioned fortune tellers. It's not about intention, it's about lordship. Are they pointing to the living God? Because the living God is the only one who is actually worthy of worship, worthy of having these things point towards him. So either he's lord or he's not. 
But aside from our spiritual gifts, giving up our lives to Jesus is always going to be our biggest battle because we don't want to do it. Because we don't really want anyone to be in charge of us other than ourselves. And we have heard this message over and over and over again from the moment we were born. You have it within you to do everything you need to do. Believe in yourself. You can do it. If you believe it, you can achieve it. You, 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 you. Be the arbiter of your own destiny. The issue is, how's that going for you? Jesus knows you better than he knows, than you know yourself, and he's got better plans for you than the ones that you've concocted, however good they are, because he created you, and he loves you. He loves you too much to let you go and make a mess of your life. So if we could just get over ourselves, we could actually give ourselves to him, and then we would be happy, but we don't want to. My um, battle with becoming a Christian was basically, I do not want to be a Christian. That was my um, complaint. <laughs> I don't want to be a Christian because why would anyone want to be a Christian? Look at them. Just look at them. I did not want to be a Christian. The problem was, I wasn't doing a very good job of running my own life. I wouldn't have admitted it to anyone at the time because on the outside everything looked great. But I wasn't doing a very good job of it. But, uh, so I was a bit desperate, but I wouldn't show anyone. And then I started going to church, and I liked the Christians. I actually found the teaching convincing, and I thought, oh my goodness, I believe this. But I do not want to become a Christian because, look, I'm going to have to go to church, and I don't want to go to church, although I did quite like going to church. The more I went, I went, ah, oh, this is fun. I like this. I like what happens here. This is good. The people are nice. The teaching seems to be right. But I didn't want to be a Christian. Then I finally gave in, and it was great but then I definitely didn't want to lead a church. Why would anyone want to lead a church? Honestly, it's a not, never do this. Never lead a church. It's a definitely never plant a church. Start with like six people in your living room, then four people come, then one person comes, and then after a while, some people come. Thank you very much for coming. You never have to come back, but thank you. It'll make my life better if you carry on coming back. Anyway, but the point is, the Christian life is a constant battle of actually believing what we believe, that it would be better to give our life into his hands and then he can take over and we might actually be peaceful, full of joy, full of love, full of kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all the things of his spirit. I actually love what I do. I really love what I do and this is what I'm supposed to do. So there's no point fighting it. I'm supposed to do it. And the more I do it, the more I love it. You're the same. You have something that you're supposed to do. Give, over, give yourself over to him, and he will show you, and he will bring it to the fore. Thirdly, there are lots of gifts. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. 
Now, Paul's focus here is on diversity, probably because the Corinthians have got it in their heads that the only thing that matters is speaking in tongues. It's not the only thing that matters, but that's what they have focused on. And they're basically erroneously believing that because they're speaking in tongues, they have somehow risen to some amazing um, uh, spiritual plane. Uh, and if, ever, if no one else does, then they haven't. That's not true at all. And Paul's trying to say, hey, there's lots of gifts. And if anything, speaking in tongues is the least important of all of them, but you should all do it. So, he is trying to show that there are lots of things that we can do and be involved in. So, I was, um, uh, I was speaking to someone uh, this week who had said that they'd become, basically become a Christian at this uh, church, uh, not this church, different church, and they'd been baptized, and it was wonderful. It had been an extraordinary experience. But then almost as soon as they'd been baptized, there became a very different message from this church, which is, okay, now your job is to evangelize and bring people to the church, and nothing else matters. The problem is, this guy's not really an evangelist, gifted in that. And yet that was the only message that came over. Now, obviously, evangelism is important. We're all called to witness, but not all of us are evangelists. Imagine the loss to that church of that person not actually being able to express his actual gifts for the church and being pigeonholed into this one area. Usually, it's the leader. The leader decides this is what we've got to do, and then we all got to do it. Now, I am an evangelist. That's what I'm gifted at, and I like doing it, and, I'm, I'm, and I want to do it all the time. But just because I'm an evangelist, it doesn't mean that I, don't, uh, that I shouldn't pray, even though I'm not like a gifted intercessor. It doesn't mean that I should pray for healing for people, even though I'm not necessarily gifted at healing. We're called to do everything. However, there is a particular gift or particular gifts that you have. And the church works really well when everyone's doing it. No one wants to hear me lead worship. They really don't, because I can't. I'm not good at it. Angel, on the other hand, very good at leading worship. So let's hear more from her and other people who are gifted at doing these things. This is when the church starts being really exciting. Because everyone has their place, everyone is being used, and everyone is important. So I want to do it all. I want the church to do everything because that's what God wants for his church. If you are called to go and serve the poor, go and serve the poor. And we want, and this is our challenge as a church, to give space to everyone to exercise their gifts so that we might be doing everything really well. when we were talking about social justice the other day, someone emailed me afterwards, and they said um, that they were just sitting there relatively um, uh, at peace. And then when sort of talk of social justice stuff started happening, they said they suddenly saw themselves with this flame above their head. Now this person is relatively new to the things of the spirit. They saw this with the flame above their head and suddenly this um, physical sense of being uh, empowered and excited, something very tangible. Now that is the Holy Spirit speaking to someone about what they are like and what they are called to do. Before I was even a Christian, people would talk about talking to other people about being a Christian, and I thought, I'd like to do that, but I don't even believe it. This is weird. It was like a sort of schizophrenic experience, but I thought, I think that would be what I'd like to do, but I'm not going to do it because I don't believe.
God intends his body to function interdependently, which means that many different people come together and play many different parts for the overall good, and it is always for the common good. Now, as anyone who has been in a long-term relationship will know, other people, they're difficult. Sometimes they put the dishcloth over the tap, over the faucet, and it doesn't go there, it goes on the side. Even when it has been pointed out in public, that's not where it goes, they still do it almost to spite you, almost to do rub it in your face. I talked about this a bit ago. Hannah and I have different ideas about where the dishcloth goes. I have the correct one, she has the incorrect one. Anyway, church, like any family, is supposed to and is stronger for everyone expressing their particular gifts together. And diversity of expression, it sounds like freedom, because it is. But freedom poses lots of other questions, and it's why often churches avoid it altogether in choosing instead to go, we're just going to do this, and you guys are here to listen to me and probably to give money, and that's about it. Because it's safer like that. Inevitably, we have to try and hold together our different personalities, our different ways of being, and trying to help each other and to push the other forward rather than to concentrate on what we're supposed to be doing. This can, though, lead to pain and frustration and annoyance and uh, disappointment with other people. Ultimately, we're called to humility, to serve. Leadership in the church is always service. And God can be trusted to know about you, to know about your giftings, to know about what you can do, and to find space for you to be used. You can trust him with that. Because with all of this, penultimate point, love is the key. Paul goes on, having done this little um, torturous uh, analogy about a body, at the end to say, but in everything... We must remember the best way, which is love. And then the famous passage about what love is like. If I talk in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am like a clashing symbol. We must primarily be people of love. Because otherwise, it does not matter how gifted you are. It does not matter if you are the greatest gifted person in the whole world. If you have not love, you are clashing a symbol into people's ears and at some point they will punch you in the face. That, that is the point. Common expressions of unlove in contexts of church like ours include these things. Getting angry with people we are trying to convince of the gospel and trying to win the argument because the argument's the only important thing. Ignoring people who clearly need our help. Being more concerned with our reputation than with the well-being of people when we talk to them or when we pray for them. Saying destructive things to people because of a um, poor theology that we've received, that it's their lack of faith that they haven't been healed. If you ever say that, never say it again. Uh, or, you know, that's the spirit of something on, you know, any of that. A big thing, I think, in American culture, which is probably similar to UK culture, but this is a works-based culture where you are rewarded for how well you do. And that's about it. 
It is the opposite of Christian culture, where you are rewarded not for what you do, but because of Jesus. And given that, though, we have learned that and we have um, received it. And it means that often we have a go at people for not being good enough when really what they need is grace, not correction. They need compassion and love and to be told that they are great as opposed to don't do that, do that better because it's not good enough. Let us above and beyond be people of grace. You always win when you are full of grace. You always win. Even when you lose. So be people of grace. Finally, we are to desire the gifts. Uh, 12.31, I think we've got this up. There it is eagerly desire the greater gifts. And by greater gifts, he's talking about everything other than tongues. Desire that, definitely, but everything other than that. And he says the greater gifts, plural, because we don't just have one. We can, let us not limit ourselves in what we can do. Let us go after it all. And let us be the salivating sort of dog kind of um, lapping at, wanting to get these as much as we possibly can. That's the language. I mean, it's not the language of a dog. But he's eagerly desiring. It's like salivating for is the word. Desire as much as you can get from God. Do not limit yourself. So, let us not be ignorant about the spiritual gifts. They derive from Jesus himself. They are the means by which we advance the kingdom. And there is a great diversity of gifts, but above all, all of them should be exercised under the umbrella of love. And we should do our utmost to seek them. So, that's a little introduction. We're going to talk about various aspects of the church, how we can be more involved in all aspects of the church, and particularly how you, with your special gifts, your personality, you can be used. Because when you're being used, it's really fun. A friend of mine brought someone to church, actually brought them to Alpha out of nowhere, and they really liked it. And now they just can't stop coming. Because someone used their gifts of going, would you like to come to this? It'll be good. And they did. It's exciting. It's exciting when you, little old you, get to be used. Because it's what you're created for. Good, that'll do.